0: Isaiah chapter 6. We're looking in a series of messages called The Chase, and it's in pursuit of the God who is pursuing you. And I've, I've simply posed a question through all of these messages that relay around this theme What would happen if our passion for God was revived? And I think the end result is that we would find ourselves with our deepest enjoyment in God. I appreciate the songs that were sung this morning. matter of fact, I, I jotted down a couple of words from the lyrics that we sang together. And I thought about those lyrics that we sang in regard to how we live and to what defines our life. This failure define you. Obviously, if you learn from failure, it can be defining defining in our lives. But it doesn't have to be our identity. So failure can be an opportunity for us to have a readjustment in our life and for things to change. This is a somber message. And what I mean by that, is that it is one that will challenge you, I think, to think. And it will be one, I hopefully, that will challenge your heart to be engaged with the God who is pursuing you. This God is unlike any other. And we will look at a passage in the, New Te- or in the Old Testament here, in Isaiah 6, that just begins, gets to show us a glimpse of this God that we are singing about. This God who has an amazing way of defining a life with a new identity. This God who has a way of taking failures and turning them around. The power of this God to revive a passion and to awaken our soul. To love him deeper, to love him more. The God who's able to to enliven our heart and our relationships, our relationship with him, our relationship with others. Our God who's able to enliven our heart with purpose, with meaning. And with the power of His presence that it becomes the motivating factor in our lives that leads us to glorify who He is in the earth. God has a purpose and plan for your life. And your life can be and can become an expression of the reality that a living God is on the throne. The world offers dead idols and serve them passionately Gusto and with strength from all the human elements. But God comes to do something different in our lives. Because he's created us for something better. And that is. That your very heart. Becomes the temple and the habitation. Of the living God. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Is there a living God on the throne of your life? Has your soul been awakened to the reality of what He has created you for? That's the power of an awakened life. From either slumber, slumber or either deadness. It's the power and reality of a living Lord that defines our very existence and then empowers us to live it for his glory. Isaiah chapter six begins with the reality. Of a sad, sad, sad situation, it was sad. It was in the year the Bible said in chapter verse one, chapter five, verse one, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's sad. Now, what is interesting here? Is that Isaiah, as a prophet, would have been one who had been given messages from God. And Isaiah chapter chapter one, Isaiah literally talks about the things that was going on in their nation that God wasn't pleased with. How they'd left God, how they'd broken the covenant, how they lived their lives for themselves. He goes on to talk about all the things that, that people moaned about and groaned about and complained about. And people would just shake their head and they would say, can, can there be a revival of any kind of hope in our lives? It was, it was in a time of spiritual decline. But it was in this year that King Uzziah died that God gave him An encounter. You see, prior to this, Isaiah had a message. Even before we find the calling, he had a message. And in chapter 1, I want you to look at these verses here. In chapter 1, go back to the screen prior. He said, listen, O heavens. Pay attention, O earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even as an ox knows its owner and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. What a sinful nation. They are loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children. And they have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned backs on their backs on Him. Why do you continue to invite punishment, He asked? Must you rebel forever? And then He says this. You're not thinking right. Your head has been injured and your heart is sick. Now, this was... You'd say, this is bad news. This was, wasn't a real encouraging message. No, but it was true. Matter of fact, you get to chapter 5, and it gets even worse. Here is a prophet who is pronouncing woes. And when, I, when they say, whoa, you know, I mean, it's like, whoa. We, we say, whoa, like, whoa. It was like, whoa, it's like, whoa. You get it? Yeah, it's not woah, <laughs> it's whoa, and it literally Isaiah pronounced a curse. Now here's a guy you would think that would you'd want him, you would want your preacher upbeat and your prophet if you had a visiting prophet who come to town, wouldn't you want him upbeat and happy? And here's a here's a here's a message, and he says, and he he pronounces a bunch of woes. Matter of fact, there are seven of them that, that he, he, he gives us in, in Isaiah chapter 5. Go ahead and go to this one, Isaiah 5. He gives us five woes, and basically, keep on going. You'll get there. Keep going. Isaiah 5, he pronounces five woes. And basically, I'm going to summarize them for you. He basically said, you're a materialistic culture. You're, you're worried about playing Monopoly, but with real land. Basically. He says, you're filled with selfish greed. He says, you're a pleasure-seeking culture. These are, these are kind of synopsis, okay? He says, you're a pleasure-seeking culture. You look for the party. You look where the quote-unquote fund's going to be. Then he says, you have become cynical and defiant about your own sin. You say, yeah, God's on the throne. Let Him him come and do His thing. You become cynical about sin. You have forgot your master. You're not thinking right. And you're sick in the heart. Chapter 1. Then he said, whoa, there has been a reversal of moral standards. You're calling what is blatantly wrong, right. And... There has been a complete foundational reversal in your culture. And then he says you have this prideful arrogance and self-sufficiency. You don't need God. You've got your own life to live. And so he says, whoa. And then he says, whoa, because you don't really have self-control, because you're indulgent in with your senses and your conscience with the consumption and the overconsumption of alcohol. He said, You're not thinking right. And you have lost self control. You have given your control over to this drink. And then he goes on to verse 23, and he, he pronounces woes and judgment on all of this. And then he goes on to say, And there's corruption. in in your leaders. There's a lacking of integrity and justice. And when there's a lacking of integrity and justice in character, there's every sort of human suffering for the people. And so, Isaiah pronounces seven woes, and seven is the, Number of perfection. I'm think Isaiah is saying you are perfectly evil. Now, gosh, I look at this and I'm thinking, boy, there's a lot of parallels here today in our life, in our times. But that that wasn't the clincher. The clincher for the prophet of God, the clincher for the man of God, was that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. That just kind of defined everything that was the moment of definition for their nation in Isaiah's mind it was like this is it Uzziah had reigned listen to this and he was a godly king Isaiah had reigned since the age of 16 years of age He instituted reforms in their life. They discovered the they discovered the law of God. They discovered their special calling as covenant people. They discovered the reality of what God was wanting to do in their life, in the life of their nation. And Uzziah had a really good reign. He was a godly king for so much of the time, but. His influence was by another prophet by the name of Zechariah who taught him. Now listen to this very carefully. He taught Uzziah the importance of fearing the Lord. I don't hear that today, do you? We say, wait a minute. I mean, I mean it, it, it put, kind of puts us in a, it puts preachers in a conundrum. It's like, okay, I'm to fear God, but He's my friend. He is, uh, yes. And the idea in the Old Testament fear of God is this. There is a reverential honor of God in our lives. So we don't take lightly sin. We don't take lightly our heart. And we don't take lightly the reality of His name being holy. The reality of that was ingrained and taught by the influence of Zechariah on Uzziah. So Uzziah reigned, and there was peace and there was prosperity. But by the by, the, toward the end of Uzziah's life, there was something that was happening in the life of a nation. The peace, the prosperity, all the things that they enjoyed that God gave them. See. Listen, it's not the hard times you have to watch out for. It's the prosperity. It, it's when the things are going well in your life. That's, the, that's when you really have an, a real tendency to get off key. That's, that's the moment of time. It's when things go well. I'll, I'll honestly you know in, in when difficult times in your life you will press into God you will seek God you will search for God you will cry out to God you will not just play pray a religious prayer like okay Lord help me and help everybody help my neighbor help and now lay me down to sleep I mean it's, you press in at the altar and you say oh God my life is hurting know what I'm talking about I mean that's that's the place at the altar. And so it was in this life of this nation. They they had veered so far and and Uzziah was kind of like the last representative of any kind of hope that they had. And now he's dead and gone. And Isaiah, I can imagine he makes his way to the temple and he's saying what in the world are we going to do? I know things were bad, but, and, but now the one person that I held hope for. But know this about Uzziah. Uzziah was not a perfect king. He actually goes off track in his latter years. He does something. He gets all the priests really in an uproar. Because it was something that a king didn't do. A king shouldn't do. But out of pride and arrogance, and it was after Zachariah died, in pride and arrogance, maybe I don't know what was he, he was thinking. He may have been Uzziah may have been thinking, I can do this better than the priest. I am king, you know. I don't know, we don't know what was in his mind, but he he again goes to the temple as a king and goes to the temple and attends and attempts to perform the priestly rites, which was forbidden. And the priest rose up and said, you can't do that. That's prideful, that's arrogance, that is the reality. No, you can't do that. But yet, This was a man who did have a heart for God. And the nation that he was leading was going far, far away. Isaiah is sad. Isaiah is grief stricken. Isaiah is realizing that unless there's some sort of change, it's not good. It was in the year that King Uzziah died, around around 747-739 B.C. That there was a defining moment that happened in the temple. It was a defining moment. He had already had the messages, but now he had something that Went down to the very depth of his heart and to his soul. And let's look at the scriptures together. Look at these verses. In chapter 1 again, go ahead and back up again. I'm taking you back. On forward. In the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. Say that with me. I saw the Lord. Kind of let that sink in just a second. Matter of fact, the word for Lord there, if you'll notice, is, and this is an this is a word that is capital L, small O R D. Other places in the Old Testament you find capital L, capital O R D. The word he uses here is the word Adonai. Hebrew word. It's not the name of God. He's saying, I saw. The Lord Adonai, the one who is sovereign, who is the king. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the king. Get it? I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a throne. And I could imagine as the girl saying, Lord, my world is not so right or it's not so right right now. But when God's on the throne and you see God on the throne, the wrongs become right. Because you know that failure, that because it's been this way for years, and all the things that become to define our lives doesn't have to. To be the defining mark. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. And he was high and he's lifted up. He was in his train. Now, this is not like a choo-choo train, folks. Okay? This is the train of his robe. It was flowing like you would think of, I would think of a wedding gown. You know, the the train, right? The train filled the temple. In other words, his presence was all-encompassing. It filled the temple. He said, I saw the Lord. I looked up and I saw the Lord. And I'm thinking, boy, he's thinking, I'm sure glad I went to church that Lord's day. Because it made all the difference. I want you to know that I've had some defining moments in church. How about you? I'm so glad that I was at church on July the 26, 1976 on a Sunday night. There was a defining moment that evening for me and I remember the day. Some people can't remember the day and time and I get that. That's okay. But I can remember the day and time. And I remind myself of it often. Defining moments, he said, this, "This vision that he saw of the Lord. He said it was it was so. I mean, it was so consuming. All of a sudden, the reality of Uzziah's death was overwhelmed by the reality of the of the God and the King who is living." He said, "Above it were seraphim. These are angels." Now he gives us, an. this was a traumatic experience, folks. A traumatic experience, because he said above it were the seraphim, and they had six wings. You know, some of us would like just two. Right? They had six. Eyes, covered their feet. And God opened the scroll of the veil of heaven and let Isaiah look into it and said, "Okay, you want to see you want to see a throne, Isaiah? Look at mine." They covered their face because God is holy. And they had two they they had two wings that covered their feet. And then they had two that flew around. So you can imagine this host of heaven. It's hard for me to imagine. But this host of heaven, like an angelic choir, they cried out to one another and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. I will never complain that we sing repetitious songs again. Because the worship of heaven, that was their song. You would think it it ought to have been Amazing Grace, right? It ought to have been four choruses or four stanzas and then add the Tomlin version of My Chains Are Gone to it. I mean, they'll just click it off. And it will one day. But this day was the defining moment that defined his life. He said, I saw the Lord. He said, they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, whole, the Lord is Yahweh there. He is the name of God. I saw the king high and lifted up. Adonai. I now see Yahweh in His the covenant making God who is full of glory. The whole earth, he said, is Full of His glory. Let me tell you, everything that God touches is full of glory. The earth was without form and void. Darkness covered the land. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And there was the glory of light. And God said let there be and there and everything that he said let there be to there was because he's God. And everything that God created and God touches reflects his glory. There is a glory in the sunshine. There is a glory in the robins who are in our yard and they're singing and they're they're doing what God created them for. their for His glory. There is a glory in a mountainous in, in the mountains that I, that we look at and we look and we say, "Oh, those magnets. It just does something in our hearts. Why? Because God, we we automatically intuitively respond. Oh, that's awesome. You look at a great waterfall, the grandeur of it. It takes your breath. You go, whoa, look at that. How awesome it is. Everything within us reflects the reality that the Creator points back to Him. And we say, oh, even the atheist does it. Unknowingly. I listened to an interview the other night. And the guy was telling me why, telling in this interview why he was a philosophical atheist. And I thought, well, that's good. And then he began talking about his health. And he said, thank God. And I'm like, it just slips out. Why does it slip out from the mouth of an atheist? You know why it slips out? Because our hearts betray us. It betrays us. We're created in the image of God. It's stamped on us. We can suppress it. We can say, hey... And really, God is our biggest problem. You say, man, the problems around us are so bad. You getting worried about the problems around you. I tell you, you've got a bigger problem. And our culture has a bigger problem. And the problem is God. What are you going to do with a holy God? What do we do with, with a holy God who is majestic and glorious? And, and this is exactly what Uzziah, you think Uzziah went to church overwhelmed. He left overwhelmed. He said, what a, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this holy God? You see, here's the first thing with, with the reality of this, in this message. And it's this. An awakened heart, there's three things here. An awakened heart, what does it look like? Here's what it looks like. An awakened heart is awakened to the holiness of, of God as sovereign and supreme in all of His glory. God is intrinsic in His holiness. In other words, He doesn't depend on anything or anybody else to, to give Him glory. He is glorious in Himself. The angels dis- ascribe to Him glory, and then there is the authoritative glory that is in His Word. It's interesting that He uses the word words. That God uses words. Yet he does. He, he was awakened. He was awakened to the reality that Isaiah had a bigger problem than King Uzziah dying. And it was because there was a living God who was on a throne, who was holy and separate and set apart from him. He's just not the good in the sky. He is separate from us. He is apart from us. And we can never attain the reality of who He is. And yet, Isaiah knew the Old Testament. To to be holy as God is holy? How can you do that? God is our problem. So look. The hearts of depraved minds would say, okay, we suppress the knowledge of the truth of who God is. We just don't want God in our lives. And we live like we don't want Him. And we make choices like we don't want We pass laws like we don't want Him. We live our lives like we don't want God. And yet God is still our problem. He kind of sneaks out of the box. It's like going to the ocean... With your, with, with your little pail and, your, and a spoon and saying, okay, I am going to lap up the whole ocean in my little bucket. God just keeps getting out of it. God is our problem. You say, Greg, I, 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 wait a minute, I, that kind of disturbs me to think that God is our problem. Here's why God is our problem. God is holy. And if God is who He is... And, and, and He does what he's, He does, and then everything that He creates is to reflect His glory, then how about our lives? Are we not created to speak and to reflect and to live His glory? I'm telling you, God is our problem, and Isaiah recognized it. So you got one or two choices. You can you can pretend like God doesn't exist, and you can pretend like oh, I'm I, I'm doing this part of my life now. I'm going to get to God a little later on in my life, but right now I got to have some fun. Who says who? What kind of fun are you going to have without God? He created it. He created it. But listen, there's nothing illicit out there for you that will not lead you into heartache and to anxiety and into a feeling of guilt and shame. See, the opposite of glory is shame. There's nothing out there that this world has to offer you that might entice you away and even draw a sinful heart away from the reality of what is greater than His glory. Because in the end, His glory is... Must be dealt with. I saw the Lord, changed his life, changed the real the reality of his life, and so I want you to notice what he how he responds to this. Oh, I've got to hurry on. But notice how he responded to this. Go to the next one. Oh, there we go again. Um, look at verse four. He says the posts of the door of the house of God were shaken. I mean that day there was there was a shaking going on in the church house. And the voice of him who cried out, the house of the Lord was filled with smoke. Now you and I would say, okay, there's a fire. Somebody's called the fire department, right? I mean, this thing was awesome. And and it was it was indescribable for Isaiah. And Isaiah said, This thing is is so mighty that his his Voice is so powerful that the temple of the Lord where the holy glory came down, the Shekinah glory came down, it filled the temple. He said it was so glorious that the the place shook. And it was filled with smoke. And I said, now this was the guy that said in chapter 5, Whoa. This was a guy that pronounced woe and said, don't you know what you're doing? And, and he looked at the culture and said, don't you see these things that are grievous in the sight of God? He looks at himself and notice what he says. Not woe is my neighbor. Not, no, not woe is the darkness in the world. Not woe is all the evil things that are going on around me. He says what? Woe is, I have a problem. And my problem is the reality that this God is greater than I ever anticipated being. That He's separate. That the reality of who He is, that His presence is all-encompassing, that makes the things in my life look trivial, that makes my problems kind of like, diminished why because he is greater and he says Whoa, and not only that then I begin to look inside my heart and I say woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips God's word my words And when you compare what God says and who I am, I dwell in a midst of a people of unclean lips. I hear it all around me. I hear the profanity, the cursing, the using God's name in vain. I hear all the, the cynical snides against the reality of the holiness of God. And he said, I recognize that. He says, but... Lord, it's me, it's me, and it's like the old gospel song, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, that is standing in the need of prayer. I can't fix me. I can't. A sad version of this would be, I can't fix me, so God, you're different, and and we just leave but I couldn't imagine just leaving. He says, woe. He pronounces a curse on himself. He says, woe is me. I am deserving. I am deserving of judgment of God. And he says, the the compelling evidence is what's on my tongue. It's interesting, all all the Old Testament passages that talks about don't take the Lord's name in vain. There's a reason why. Why? Because His name is holy. It's not to be profaned. The reality of his holiness, and he says, then one of the seraphim. This is one of these these holy angels that had that left the angelic choir that was giving, you know, that was singing holy, holy, holy. I don't know that they stopped saying that or singing that. They said that the scripture says here. Then he comes down with this with this live coal from the holy altar of God, and fire is mentioned in the scripture in two in two ways. One is the holiness of God, and the other one is the fiery judgment. He said this this angel comes down with this live coal that was taken from the tongues of the altar of God where God's presence was and he comes down and he touches my tongue. You see the second thing that we see from an awakened heart is this. We see the reality of our own sinfulness. We see the reality of our own sinfulness. Go to this one. The reality of our own sinfulness. He says, I'm undone. I can't change my situation. I can't change myself. There was a godly sorrow for himself. Lord, what has been defining of my life in my words? What if our words defined us? I'm thinking, oh my Lord, help me. A godly sorrow. Desperate sense of need. And then he comes into a sincere agreement with God. That sounds to me a lot like repentance. Doesn't it? Sounds like, yeah, he got it. So he's saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I recognize that you're holy. I am in need of something I just can't turn over a new leaf and get this right. I don't have the strength. I don't have the grace. I don't have the power within me. I need you. We sang that, didn't we? And then he comes into agreement with God. You know what confession of sin is? Confession of sin is coming to agreement with God about what God already knows to be true about you. In other words, we're saying, Lord, I confess and come into agreement with heaven about my sin. And then repentance is turning from it. That's what repentance is. He was awakened to this. I am sure that with this encounter and an awakened soul that Isaiah's life changed. And then it's kind of like he gets invited into a conversation in heaven. It's, it's like this in verses 7 and 8. Notice what he said here in verses 7 and 8. This angel touched his mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. <laughs> Glorious. The God who is holy is also the God who is filled with grace. Right? There's the loving God. You have to get through the bad news. To the good news. God does the work. It's not you becoming a better person. Not you joining a church. Not you deciding to be a better person. It's you coming to Christ in everything that you lack and to say, God, I need you. He heard hears the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Notice how he said this. It's kind of like Isaiah is is brought into a divine council meeting between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, and God the Holy Spirit is holy. And he's saying, who in the world, who who can we send? Who will go for us? With enough courage, he said, Lord, here am I. Send me. my words notice here what he had now here's what you want in your life you want significance you want purpose you want to know that your life has meaning you want to know that your life is going somewhere you want to know that your life matters in the end for more than just working your nine to five or whatever time you work or no so matter what you're called or you're you want to know that your life is making a difference here's how you know it when you are brought under the alignment of the glorious God who created you. He will, ref- you can, your life can reflect His glory in all that you say and do. That's the message here, and apart from it, it can't. So who who will I say send me? I will I will go, Lord. What could happen in an awakened heart? Here's the last thing. An awakened heart. An awakened heart. Awakened to the need for personal cleansing. And being set apart for God. That's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. What could happen in your hearts? What could happen in our community? What could happen in our church? What could happen in our lives? What could happen in our nation? What could happen in the world around us? What could happen in your family? Oh dear one. What could happen? What could happen? If we came to Jesus and saying Lord you're holy and you're righteous. And I'm more overwhelmed with you than I am anything that this world has. Or has done. Or could do. In 1730. Our nation. Had been. Had been. Put to sleep. There was a spiritual lethargy that had. Pervaded the land. You see it was their forefathers. Who got over on the Mayflower. And had come. And with a religious fervor. To serve God. And by 1730 there was 13 colonies. Kind of all doing their own little things. And there was a spiritual lethargy. That pervaded through the church. I mean, you talk about dead. They were dead. There was a whole generation that had been raised up, and their generation before them knew God, and there was a generation of their children that came along. They hadn't the great experience. They were more consumed with building wealth. And so they did with wealth comes pleasures and all of those things and there was a spiritual lethargy matter of fact it was so pervasive that it became, uh, it became apparent to the many of the ministers Theodore Freeling I think is his name was a Dutch reformed he came and he preached and he said he, he, it, it just struck him being in America a place of religious freedom he said it just struck him how dead the churches were there was a spiritual deadness and a lethargy there was no really interest of God. So he began to call for repentance. He began to, to preach the gospel. They began to call people and, and recognize that, that there were sinners and that they needed Christ. They needed a personal relationship with Him. And, and uh, that they needed to be more than religious. That they needed this personal God to change their life. And he began to preach. Another young minister who was named Jonathan Edwards who became one of the premier theologians of that era who, who, uh, who was president one time, I think, of Princeton. He recognized the same thing in his own church. He would go to the homes and visit the families of some of the most dedicated members in his church and he realized that there was a, a pervasive immorality of the young people in every way. And he's like, well, you know, what is this about? And he, many of them were in church. And, and it, was, it, it really disturbed him. It, it, it struck his heart the reality that there was such spiritual lethargy, that, that God was just kind of something that you did on Sunday, but had no impact on our lives on Monday or the rest of the week. So he began to do like the other preacher did. He began to talk about repentance, to talk about the importance of God, the reality of the holiness of God. And then something happened, a prayer meeting breaks out and people begin to seek God to do something in their life and in their lives and and to awaken them from their spiritual slumber to the realities of the majestic glory of this God that we serve. And all of a sudden in between the years of 1730 to 1740 there was this reality of revival that began to spark and it began to spark in these little churches. People who were seeking God. People who were looking for God. People who were not looking to be entertained. They were looking for God. And all of a sudden God begins to show up and working in people's lives. And then there's a an English preacher who comes named George Whitfield over from across from a faraway land and he begins to preach up and down the seacoast. This man, young man, was probably at the age of 30 or 24 at the time. And all of a sudden there was an awakened interest in God that would bring, that would bring. The reality of God into people's lives. And George Whitfield would go from seacoast to seacoast in England. That's why you have, you know, if you ever wondered why there's so many different denominations in, in our country, then thank God for the first great awakening. But I want you to know that it did more than create all these denominations. It brought denominations together to seek God. So you had the Wesleys that would go out into the, into the hills and the valleys and in the mining camps and preach the gospel. We sing the words to holy, holy, holy. The writer is John Wesley, I believe, or Charles' brother. Why? Because there was something that encapsulated their heart. They wanted more than religion. They wanted God. And I'm saying, I'm just simply asking you this morning, what could happen in your life, in your family, in your church, in your community, and in your nation, if we, as God's people, who are called by His name, saw the Lord high and lifted up and lived like it? He will automatically raise you up to higher purpose. Look up. Dear heart, discouraged one, you're discouraged perhaps with your family or discouraged with things going on. Look up and take courage. The Lord is on His throne. He is on His throne. And He's righteous and He's holy and He's just. And He's given us a mind and a spirit that is in our right mind to seek Him while while it is day. And if you seek the Lord, you will find Him. And He's not lost. Seek the Lord. Let's stand for prayer together. Our girls will come and sing. Father, Oh, how we need you, Lord. Lord, we ask that revival would begin in our hearts. The world is in great need, Lord, but we're in greater need and you're our greater problem because you're holy and righteous and we're not. We need you. I pray that today, that if the Holy Spirit has struck any card of, upon any human heart here this morning, I pray that you'd give them grace to respond. I pray Jesus, and ask. That you would be pleased to do this work in our lives and give us grace to repent and turn to you. You are the living God, and indeed, the living God brings life and in its fullest. I pray that you'd grant us not only the grace and mercy, but the willingness to say, Lord, here am I, send me. you may send us across the street to our neighbor to show love to show the power of your grace and forgiveness you may grant us words of forgiveness somebody that perhaps has wronged us you may grant us the power with words to speak love and grace and mercy and oh Jesus we ask that you would Search our hearts, O oh Lord, and know if there's any wicked way that is in us that we may turn to you, the living God, and find life. If there's any here, Lord, that has never trusted you, Savior and Lord, they realize today that they're in, in need. Give them courage and give them grace to simply say yes to you. To turn their hearts to you. For the sake of Christ. For revival in our land. In our nation. In our community. Lord there is no greater problem that we have in our community. Than you. And your holiness. I pray we would lean into it today. For Jesus sake. Amen.